Okay, what we're doing tonight then is, uh, this is the third of our presentations on uh, Reformation Men, which is a coverall title basically for uh, those individuals who really they are either men of the Reformation, like tonight's guy, or certainly they are men who would want to be identified with what happened at the time of the Reformation and they would stand on the doctrines of the Reformation. What I want to do this week is William Tyndale. Now, straight away, somebody who knows their history might say, well, why did you do Calvin before Tyndale? It would have made good sense to have left a study on Calvin until I had recounted something of the life and labors of Tyndale. After all, uh, Calvin died in 1564, a long time ago. But Tyndale died in 1536. Now, Luther died in 1546, ten years later than Tyndale. So you can see that Tyndale, he's early. So why then did I leave Tyndale until this week? Well, the reason I kept back Tyndale until now was because of his work as a Bible translator. That's what he's famous for, and that's what I want to bring your attention to tonight. And so there was that specific focus. Whereas with Calvin, you have a Bible commentator, you have a theologian of first rank. In Tyndale, you have a slightly uh, different individual, although certainly as a scholar, not behind Calvin really in any way. Also, because I wanted to follow Tyndale with more Englishmen. Maybe that's just because I'm English, and I just wanted to do lots of Englishmen. But I wanted to go into the Puritans next week. And so it seemed to me to, to be a better way of tying in the Puritan movement if I had somebody already that I'd spoken about to set a kind of a background to what was happening in England before their time. Okay. How many of you have heard of William Tyndale? Well, I'm glad a good many of you have, but if you haven't, I would understand that. He's not the most famous of the reformers, although certainly he is a reformer of the first rank, and he's a very, very important person in the history of the West. In fact, if it wasn't for William Tyndale, I wouldn't be talking like this to you today, and you wouldn't be talking the way that you talk to each other today. You wouldn't be reading books with the kind of English that you read in it today. Now, I know that in America, you've got to mess our language up something terrible. Taking use out of words like color and valor and things like that, and I'm always having to check myself, otherwise the spell check, my spell check on this computer says that I've spelled things wrong. But generally what we have is the English language, and that English language as we know it, with its rules and with all of the great literature that flows out of it, comes for a large part from this man, William Tyndale. And I hope to impress that upon you tonight. Tyndale was born in a fairly well-to-do family in the English southwestern county of Gloucestershire in 1494. I know that seems an awful long time ago. The world's changed very much since then. For example, the population of England at that time was 6 million people. The population of England today is nearly 50 million people. So you can see it was a vastly different Europe at that time. And of course, America was even more different. 
He received a very good schooling and he was sent up to Oxford University at the age of 12 in 1506. There he would study Latin in depth, concentrating on the great Roman and scholastic authors. So he'd be reading Virgil and Cicero and he'd be reading Thomas Aquinas and William of Ockham and all these other people that you've never heard of but who were very important in their day. And in fact, their works still remain important today. He would also read many poets and men of letters. He would study logic and grammar and rhetoric, which is a so-called trivium. It was called the trivium. Everyone who went up to the university would first have to study logic and grammar and rhetoric, rhetoric being the, the art of speech. Now, in today's schools, you don't study logic, you don't study grammar very much, and you don't study rhetoric. So, again, quite a lot of difference between his world and ours. He spent nine years studying these pagans, as he called them, and it it wasn't until his tenth year at Oxford that he began to study the scriptures. And he studied the scriptures in Latin. In fact, once he got to to learn Latin, he would study everything in Latin. He would listen to lectures in Latin. Uh, He would compose his own letters in Latin. Everything at an educated level in Britain and in Europe was in Latin. Particularly, that was the case in England. Because in England, the English language, and this comes from the, the big authority on Tyndale, David Danielle, of Oxford University, whose work on Tyndale I'm relying a great deal on. Daniel says that if you can imagine it, the English language, which is spoken by about two billion people in the world today, either as their first or second or third language, at the time of Tyndale in the early 1500s, was about as popular as Welsh is today. How many of you can speak Welsh or Gaelic? That's what the English language was like. That's how popular it was. And in fact, the writing of the day in English and the common speech, the market speech and so on of the day was a mixture of different languages. Not that anyone knew any of these languages. They just knew certain words of French and certain words of Latin and certain words of Greek and certain words of Saxon and certain words of Angle coming back from uh, old Germany. And they would just use these different words that had been passed down. There were no rules of grammar, no rules of spelling or punctuation or anything. So the English language really was a hodgepodge, which is an old English word, a mixture of uh, different languages and wasn't really a proper language in itself. And so he would do everything in Latin at Oxford University. The theology at Oxford, which is what Tyndale went up there to to study, you could only study theology once you'd already got your bachelor's degree. And in, I think, your third year of your master's, that's when you'd study theology. And the theology that he was taught was a scholasticism and a warmed-over Aristotle. had very little to do with the Bible. And so, for example... Uh, bring it to a level that you may have heard of. Any of you heard of the questions of uh, how many angels can dance on the head of a pin? 
Well, that was a real question that was asked by the scholastics in the Middle Ages. And they spent hours and days and years trying to answer that question. Are you interested in the answer? Are you interested in asking the question? No, it's nowhere in the Bible. It's not important. Well, it, philosophically, it has some importance, but really it's, not, it's of no importance to the everyday man at all. And certainly, Tyndale just counted it as pure paganism. He did not enjoy it at all. Now, Oxford at that time was, was the world's leading university. And so he was at the most prestigious university in Europe, and yet he was not learning any biblical theology at all. Now, today, we have an opportunity, and I use that word advisedly, to learn the theology of the Bible. But very often we don't avail ourselves of it. We're not interested in it. And remember, I think I said this last week when I was talking about Calvin. Today, if you interview most pastors or most Bible college students, the last thing they're interested in is theology. Theology just is a big word, meaning that just the knowledge of God. Knowing God and knowing about God and being able to talk intelligently about God and tell people what he's like and what he's not like. And to be able to answer questions intelligently about your Christian faith. That's what theology enables you to do. And scholasticism didn't allow you to do that. And of course, in many of our churches, you're not given enough theology to answer even very basic questions. No wonder atheistic teachers in, in our colleges and universities don't think very much of Christians. After all, most Christians don't really know what they're talking about when they're talking about Christianity. In fact, most of our young people, thanks for coming tonight. Uh, I don't know who bribed you to come, but I'm glad that you came. Most of our young people, they will go off to college after spending years and years in their churches and they won't know the Christian faith. And it isn't any wonder that they lose their faith when they get to college because they've not been taught it. They've just been taught that Jesus died for their sins. That's good, but that is only the beginning. I'm kind of preaching now instead of telling you about Tyndale. So let's get back to the uh, subject of the, of the lecture. But the reason that I'm tying that in, you see, is, is because he had nothing. We've got everything, and yet we make nothing of it. It was at Oxford that he encountered the revolutionary 1516 edition of the Greek New Testament by Erasmus. Now, you have to understand that only someone like Erasmus could have done this. Erasmus, the great humanist scholar of the day. Because the Roman Catholic Church at that time, everything was done in Latin. If, if you went to church and you wanted to, to hear the scriptures, you could hear them read in Latin. If you wanted to hear some preaching, you could hear it in Latin. As much as the priests knew Latin. Usually it'd be, you know... I play dominoes, I play, you know, all that stuff. You know, it wouldn't be very edifying at all. It certainly wouldn't be very biblical. But Erasmus, what he did is that he printed a Latin text of the official Roman Catholic Bible, which was Jerome's Vulgate, and next to it, he printed the Greek New Testament, which, of course, is the language in which the New Testament was written. And that was revolutionary. It was revolutionary in two ways. First of all, Remember what I said about the humanists? They wanted to go back to the original sources. 
So they went back to the Greek and they learned Greek. And then, of course, out of that came the Greek New Testament and translations of other works from Greek. And then also that spurred people who wanted to get to the original to learn Greek. And Tyndale certainly was one of them and became one of the greatest Greek and Hebrew and Latin scholars of his day and was renowned all over Europe. He was one of the great scholars of Europe and was recognized as such. It was also at Oxford that Tyndale came into contact with some of the writings of Luther, Martin Luther, the reformer, some of the early writings. After 10 years, he left Oxford and went possibly to Cambridge to sharpen his already considerable Greek skills and also to perhaps discuss theology because the theology of the Reformation was being discussed much more openly at Cambridge than it was at Oxford. At any rate, he was soon back in his native county of Gloucestershire as tutor to the family of Sir John Walsh. He was well known already as one of the outstanding Greek and Latin scholars of his day, as I've already told you, but he was not content to sit under the glow of his scholarly achievements. Tyndale was for the common man. Tyndale was a very strongly converted Christian, and he strongly believed that the average man, boy, child, should know the scriptures, should know the word of life. It's really hard for us to understand uh, his passion there, because we've got the Bible. There's one right in front of you. And I don't know how many of you read it, but it's there to be read. No big deal. So someone like Tyndale, and to many people like him, this was a matter, literally, of life and death, as to whether they had access to that book. And it has been a matter of life and death for thousands of God's people down through the centuries. And don't you think that God is not going to hold us accountable for the way we treat or ignore his word that has been available to us today? So he began preaching in the local parishes. He was ordained a priest and began preaching locally and even, it appears, in the open air, in the villages. He would go there and gather a crowd and he would preach to the people. In fact, there is evidence that he preached at some of the places where George Whitfield, the great revival preacher of the mid-1700s, was to preach at the very same places near Bristol. It was during this time that a certain clergyman who was sitting at the Walsh's table exclaimed in Tyndale's presence, no doubt thinking that he was being quite a scholar, quote, we are better without God's law than without the popes. Now that was the mentality of the priests and the churchmen of that day. We're better without God's law than we are without the popes. We need the popes, that's more important. Can you see that the only message that most of the people in England were hearing was a message of damnation through that attitude? This is Tyndale's retort, which of course is very famous. I defy the Pope and all his laws. If God spare my life ere many years, I will cause a boy that driveth the plough to know more of the scriptures than thou dost. That's uh, Tyndale's heart as well as his scholarly integrity coming out there. 
He's concerned with getting the scriptures to the people. And he wants to translate them. That's the only way that the plowboy is going to be able to understand them. By the way, this also entails what? It entails that the plowboy can read. And you see, this is one of the things that happens in the Reformation. In the Reformation, people are taught to read because there's an incentive to read, because they can then go and read the Bible. In the 1540s, this is uh, 10 years or so after the death of Tyndale, the uh, King of England ordered that every church in every parish in England will have a copy of the Bible chained to the altar. Everyone can go and read it. It was to be open. And so there was a great incentive to education, a great incentive to read the Bible, considering that since 1408, the reading of the Bible in the common tongue was punishable by death. Tyndale's statement was quite one to make, wasn't it? One could be burned alive for saying such things. And to be burned alive, by the way, could, you could, it would take you three days to die sometimes. Deliberately so. Because they wanted to purge your sins as well, you see. Purge everything away from you before you finally drifted off and, as they thought, went to hell. Although, of course, most of the people that were burned at the stake went to glory. The people that burned them had a surprise waiting for them at the end of their lives. In pursuance of his goal to translate the Bible from the original languages into the language of the common Englishman, Tyndale travelled to London to seek the blessing of Bishop Tunstall, who was the Bishop of London. But Tunstall, though a friend of Erasmus and a humanist, was under the thumb of the greedy and scheming Cardinal Wolsey, who wanted to be Pope. And Tunstall refused to see Tyndale. So Tyndale now was in a quandary. He wanted to translate the Bible, but the leading guy who he thought he would get help from refused even to see him. So what was he to do? Well, this made him go to the continent of Europe, and he travelled to Germany, first to Hamburg and to Cologne. And after a couple of false starts, in 1524 he went to Germany, he settled at the town of Worms, which was made famous just a few years before by Luther at the so-called Diet of Worms. That's where Luther met Charles V, the emperor, and said those words, Here I stand, I can do no other. May God help me. It was the providence of God also, I think, that drove Tyndale to Europe. You see, even if Tunstall had given his blessing to the translating and printing of the English New Testament, there wasn't anyone to print it. There were only two printers in England in Tyndale's day. And both of them, according to Danielle, were rotten. You wouldn't want anything published by them. But on the continent of Europe, there were well over a thousand printers and most of them extremely good, extremely competent. And their names are known. And Worms was one of the main uh, places where books could be printed. And so, in 1525, you see how quickly he w works, Tyndale completes his wonderful translation of the New Testament into English. This was published the following year, 6,000 copies unbound, they were not bound and these copies were then smuggled back into Britain 
usually by the merchants who found ready purchasers for them. One of the most eager purchasers of these New Testaments was Bishop Tunstall. But Bishop Tunstall wasn't eager to disseminate the word of God. He wanted to burn them. In fact, he said that he'd found 2,000 errors in Tyndale's New Testament. Well, of course he'd found 2,000 errors because Tyndale was translating from the Greek whereas the one that Tunstall was comparing it with was a Latin translation, uh, not a particularly good one. So Tyndale's was just far more accurate in 2,000 places than the Latin. Obviously, this public burning of these New Testaments by Tyndale would have been enough to discourage many a soul, but Tyndale actually saw it as a positive because what happened is that with Tunstall buying up so many of these New Testaments enough funds were raised and found their way back to Tyndale to print many more of them which found their way back into England again printers are no fools in 1528 he published his most important work he published a number of books and his most important besides the translation of the Bible is called The Obedience of a Christian Man This was a very influential work, and it's not been given the kind of credence and attention that it should have been. This was probably the most influential work by an Englishman in the 16th century to disseminate the views of the Reformation. And so Tyndale is rightly claimed as the father of the English Reformation. And the English used to be, and I put the emphasis on used to be, called the people of the book. And that, I think, in no small measure was because of Tyndale's influence, both his influence in the translation of the Bible and also his influence in disseminating the ideas of the Reformation through his works. His theology is centered around the great theme of the sovereignty of God. It's all about God. Most of our modern theology or our modern preaching today is centered around what? the sovereignty of man with God just being there as a great slot machine in the sky who just provides blessings for us when we need them that's not of course biblical, it's not correct and in fact it's idolatry while at Worms he also began learning Hebrew there was a rabbinic school there in which he quickly became very proficient in fact uh, Daniel calls attention to this fact that as both a Greek and a Hebrew scholar Tyndale was far ahead of Martin Luther he was a a much greater scholar in those languages than Luther he knew eight languages by the way and by 1530 he published his translation of the first five books of Moses by this time he was living in the great printing and distribution mecca of Antwerp which is in modern day Belgium In Antwerp, he had finished translating the historical books by 1535, when he was arrested by the emperor's guards. He also managed to produce a revision of the New Testament in 1534, a book which would provide the translators of the King James Version, the authorized version, with 83% of their New Testament. Tyndale's arrest is something of a tragic story. He was betrayed by a man who Daniel calls a horrible man by the name of Henry Phillips. Now, Henry Phillips 
was the son of a fairly wealthy merchant who had given, been given a sum of money to take to London to give to a friend of his father's. Instead of giving it to the friend, he stole it and gambled it away. And then because he was so ashamed and couldn't go back to his father, he went to the continent where he ingratiated himself with the Roman Catholic and anti-English authorities there. And... Uh, as well as a, a lot of other things, made scurrilous attacks against the king and the nation and was very strongly against anything to do with the Reformation. He would do anything for money and often would steal from people who had been very kind to him. What he decided to do was, uh, in order to get some money and live in a kind of lifestyle that he wanted to live with, he decided to betray William Tyndale. He hatched a scheme. Uh, his scheme was that he would go to Antwerp and he would befriend Tyndale. And after getting Tyndale's confidence, he would set up a predetermined time and place in which the emperor's guards could arrest Tyndale. And that's exactly what he did, pointing Tyndale out to the guards. The actual guards said afterwards, they were only doing their duty, they said that Tyndale was kind of like a little child. And they felt kind of sorry for him because although he was this great scholar in the ways of the world, he was very innocent and was a very trusting kind of an individual. So Phillips has gone down in history as this odious individual, a liar, a gambler, a traitor. And uh, as far as we know, his end was as ignominious as his character. He uh, ended up going around Europe just begging, uh, hated by everybody, even the people that had used him to their ends. Tyndale, after being arrested, was shut up in a castle near Brussels in Belgium for 16 months. Uh, most of this time he didn't have opportunity even to have his warm clothes. And he was in darkness quite a lot of the time as well. And after he was examined by the Roman Catholic authorities and he refused to recant, on the 6th of October, 1536, he was publicly strangled and then burned. Now, he was strangled because of his reputation as one of Europe's greatest scholars. Most heretics, as he was thought to be, would just be burned at the stake. It was because of, you know, like I say, his reputation that he was allowed to be garroted first. What about the influence then of, of Tinder? Well... Like I said, at the time of the English translation of Tyndale, which came out in 1526, English was hardly known on the continent of Europe at all. It was not a major language and it had no real form. After Tyndale's work, English became a proper language. And remember that the great writers and poets of England were only a hundred years after Tyndale. People like Shakespeare and Milton, Herbert and people like that were just a couple of generations away from Tyndale and clearly their wording and the, the English that they used was influenced by Tyndale's translation. It's hard for us to get a grasp of that because we think, well, Tyndale couldn't have had that kind of impact. Surely we can find English the way that we know it today in some other writings of the time, but you can't. It was Tyndale that made modern English with his Bible translation. We don't have time to go into uh, some of his translating work, but uh, even little uh, you know, biblical sentences like, uh, let there be light, 
comes from Tyndale. Many of the well-known turns of phrases that we have come from Tyndale. Words like subtle, for example, for the serpent, and I believe the word atonement come from Tyndale. He made, in a sense, the English language. And, of course, Daniel says this, not in the book but elsewhere. He says, without Tyndale, no Shakespeare. And without Tyndale, no authorised version. No King James Bible. Now, when you consider that the Geneva Bible of 1560 and the King James Bible of 1611, together, in a sense, are the most influential book in the history of the world, and it's because of the influence of the English Bible, now Shakespeare too, but certainly the English Bible predominantly, that English is spoken by a third of the world's population, then I think you begin to see the magnitude of Tyndale's work. He was a, a brilliant translator, and of course, those of you who have done some translation, you, know, you will realize that translating from one language to another is not just getting the words or the sense. What you have to do is that you have to get an English style that matches the power and impact of the Greek or the Hebrew. And that is not easy. In fact, that's very difficult. Well, Tyndale does that, and he does that superbly. And in doing that, he molded the English language, as, I'm so, as I said. Interestingly, all of Tyndale's books were pocket books, even his Bible. They were designed to just fit in the pocket. You wouldn't think that, would you? Uh, those of you that have seen these films of these monks and these scholars getting down from the, the shelves great big tomes, which they would dust off and open up like this. Well... Tyndale's books just fit in the pocket because he wanted the common man to read them and how could they read them if they were so expensive because they were huge folio volumes. In his work on the obedience of the Christian man, I want to just uh, go through some of the, uh, the thinking of Tyndale as a theologian. It's probably best to do this by going through some of the structure of the first part of this book. This is his argument. There were three sections to the, the work. The first section, Scripture itself shows that the Word of God necessitates persecution. That's a good way to start a book off, isn't it? Do you think that would sell well in our Christian bookstores today? Do you think that would be recommended on our TV channels? This is a great book. You want to read this one. The first chapter is just a corker. It tells you that if you are an obedient Christian man, you're going to be persecuted. Secondly, God has the greater power, however, as Scripture demonstrates throughout. So you're not to count your life as anything. You're to focus on God, who has the power over life and death. Third, it is essential that Scripture be freely available to everyone. They are false who argue against it being in the mother tongue. And he continues... The children of Israel, even in their darkness, had the law, the Old Testament, in their mother tongue. How is it that we who walk in the day are not allowed to see it as well? Moses commanded the children of Israel to give constant attention to Scripture. How can that be any less for us as Christians? But laymen are said to be too busy in the world to warrant having Scripture. Yet the bishops are the busiest in the world. It is feared that laymen would take scripture too variously. In other words, they'd interpret it in all different ways. 
Yet the clergy don't teach it at all. You may know that those of you who have been in the Roman Catholic Church, that one of the common objections, if you hear it at all nowadays, to the Bible being translated, or to the Protestant Bible at least, is that, well, the church needs to interpret the Bible for the the laity, for the people. How many of you had the Bible interpreted to you, taught you in a Roman Catholic church, former Roman Catholics? None of you did, because they don't do it. And they certainly never did it in Tyndale's day. And so, Tyndale is not only famous, and justly so, for being one of the greatest scholars of his day, but he's famous and should be more famous and should be more of a household name, particularly in the English-speaking world, because he basically made the English language. Now, you're not going to be taught that in school and college. I don't know what you're going to be taught there, good gracious me. But it's a fact of history that before Tyndale, English was a mess. Now it is the world's leading language. You'd have to trace that down to the influence of Tyndale and, of course, finally, to the influence of his God. What are the lessons that we can learn? Well, I think the main lesson that we can learn from the life of someone like William Tyndale is that it's worth it to put God first. It's worth it to put God first. God accomplished great things through him and he always, he had a chance to recount even at the very end, but he never did. I wonder, with the Bibles that we have in front of us, I wonder if uh, we were going to be killed, murdered publicly, and we were given the chance to recount. All we'd have to do is to, to recount of reading the Bible in, in English. I wonder what our answer would be. Now, perhaps if we were honest, we might say, well, sure, since I don't read it anyway. As Christians, we must realize that God has given us the greatest treasure that we can have. We cannot have eternal life. Eternal life. In other words, in 10 billion years, you still have wonderful, glorious, joyful experiences. And a bazillion years after that, everlasting life. Through Jesus Christ, who can only be found today through the scriptures, his word. That's what Tyndale wanted everybody to read. Let's make sure that we try, even feebly, to catch something of his spirit. Do we have any questions or any observations? Well, Wycliffe's translation comes, thank you for calling him by his right name, comes in at uh, 1377. 1377 to the final Wycliffe translation of 1384. Uh, Wycliffe died in 1382. Now Wycliffe was the master of Balliol College in Oxford, so he was an Oxford scholar, and his name was very well known to Tyndale at Oxford and in Gloucestershire. The Lollard preachers that Wycliffe sent out were very strong in Gloucestershire, so he probably had a, a good idea of bits of the gospel but the English because of course Wycliffe wanted to translate into the mother tongue he translated into Anglo-Saxon okay it was uh, uh, again a real mishmash although it was not as corrupt as it became a hundred years later it still was very archaic so if you look at a Wycliffe translation you can hardly read it you won't be able to make the words out 
it's like a, reading a foreign language. It's, it, well, it is a foreign language. It's not the English of Tyndale. It's not the English of today. Survive yes. The well, the, the Wycliffe is not... It's a translation of not all, but in, in main parts, the tr- English translation of the Latin Vulgate. The authorised version is the translation from the Hebrew and the Greek, not from Latin. And it's mainly Tyndale's work. 83% in uh, the Old Testament up to Second Chronicles. And uh, the same amount in the New Testament is Tyndale's word wording. And so, uh, yeah, Wycliffe, remember, who was... He, he died a natural death. He was dug up and burned afterwards, of course. And his bones were ground to powder and thrown in the River Swift in England. But the English of his translation is uh, is unreadable. Any other questions? Wycliffe or Tinder? Yes, um, John Rogers. John Rogers, who you may have heard of, he was one of the first martyrs under Bloody Mary in 1555. Also, John Frith, who was the first martyr burned at the stake in 1555 under Mary Tudor's reign. They were both scholars of Tyndale. Rogers, it was actually, who produced the Matthew, the so-called Matthew's Bible. It was just a, a name that was dug up there, but Rogers put it out. And that is mainly Tyndale's work of the Old Testament up to Second Chronicles and the whole of the New Testament, plus Coverdale's translation from the Latin, not from the Greek, from the Latin, in the prophets and the poetic books. The Geneva Bible, by the way, of 1560, which is translated in Calvin's Geneva by five men, again, very heavily relies on Tyndale. And even, uh, I should say this about the Geneva Bible, that probably not any King James only people here, but even if they, they are, you should know that even the King James translators don't quote their own translation in their preface. They quote the Geneva Bible. It was the Geneva Bible that was the Bible of the English-speaking people, at least until about 1640. From 1560 to 1640, a million copies of the Geneva Bible were sold. Now, how many people did I say lived in England? Six million. So it gives you an idea of the popularity of the Geneva Bible. Geneva Bible was quoted by Shakespeare, by Bunyan by you know, many of the, the great men of the time. And the Geneva Bible most certainly you know, strongly reflects Tyndale's influence. Can, can you elaborate a little bit on the Apocrypha, the 1611 authorized version? Well, going a little bit out of that, but yeah, the Apocrypha was put between the Testaments in the authorized version. The authorized is the King James Version, of course. And it was noted as not being inspired, but being useful, edifying material that could be read uh, for instruction. So these people that say, and I've heard it said before, you know, well, the authorized version had the Apocrypha in it, so obviously they thought it was inspired. They just don't know what they're talking about. They believe that the Apocrypha was useful, and it is. Certain parts of, particularly 1 Maccabees, for example, is very helpful for some background material. 
but you get into Tobit and Bella the Dragon and Third Maccabees with you know angels flying everywhere and horses of fire everywhere and all this nonsense and uh, it's no use at all. Was that a Tyndale translation? No, no, he didn't translate the Apocrypha. Well, the preachers, yeah, when the well, not Sunday school, not at that time. But the Reformation took hold of people. They got saved and they taught like the masters would teach their servants. In fact, uh, in England in the 17th century, that was expected. If you were a good Christian home, you were expected to teach your servants the Bible and to ed- give them a, a, at least enough education so that they can read the Bible. And the churches also encouraged that. This idea that in the 17th century a lot of Englishmen couldn't read is not true. A lot of them could read. It's the same as like in Africa today, you know. You know, an ignorant person might say, well, a lot of people in Africa can't read. Well, a lot of them can't, but you'll be surprised at how many can. And they read better than the average American as well. And it's because it's important to them. Okay, let's have a word of prayer, shall we?